0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Case Collective podcast. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw and this month I'm joined by Jemima McGrath, solicitor in Barry Nilsson's Brisbane office. On this episode, we'll be considering what it means to take reasonable precautions under an insurance policy, the circumstances in which a court will rectify a policy to reflect the intentions of the parties and the circumstances in which it won't, an interesting consideration of contributory negligence in the context of a personal injury claim, and finally, the assessment of damages in the long-running saga of the scenic tours class action involving some not-so-luxurious European river cruisers. So, without any further ado, Jemima, please kick us off.
1: Thanks, Kingsley. So, the first case I have for you is out of the Victorian Court of Appeal, which recently found that compliance with statutory conditions are not an absolute requirement under a public liability insurance policy, as long as an insured has taken reasonable precautions. The case, certain underwriters at Lloyds of London and Dillon Scaffolding Proprietary Limited involved an incident where an apprentice plumber was carrying a piece of guttering on a scaffold erected by the defendant insured when he hit the overhead power lines and was electrocuted. As a result of the incident, the apprentice plumber brought a common law claim for damages for personal injury against the insured. The Victorian WorkCover Authority also issued proceedings against the insured and WorkSafe prosecuted the insured in connection with the incident. During the WorkSafe proceedings, the insured pled guilty to a charge that it failed to ensure that a permit for the scaffold works had been obtained and that any scaffolding works in that zone were carried out in accordance with the permit. As a result of the Common Law and Victoria WorkCover Authority proceedings, the insured made a claim on its public liability insurance policy which was held with underwriters at Lloyds of London. The insurer denied indemnity on the basis that the insured failed to comply with two conditions of cover in the policy, one relating to compliance with statutory requirements and safety regulations, and the other relating to compliance with the Australian Standards. However, the insured argued that it ought to be indemnified as it had complied with a general condition in the policy, which stipulated that... The insured, at its own expense, shall take all reasonable precautions to prevent personal injury or property damage and cease any activity which may give rise to liability under this policy. As a result, the insured joined the insurer as a third party to both the common law proceeding and the Victorian WorkCover Authority proceeding. At trial, the judge found that the requirements under the policy to comply with the regulations fell within the realm of reasonable precaution requirements and on this basis, the issue turned on whether the insured did take reasonable precautions. In this regard, Her Honour Justice Forbes was not satisfied that the insured had not taken reasonable precautions, as it had notified the site supervisor of the need to obtain the permit. The insurer was not happy with this decision and sought leave to appeal on two grounds. The first was on the basis that the clauses in the policy relating to the regulations were not reasonable precaution clauses, and the second, that the insured had not taken reasonable precautions. The Court of Appeal followed the New South Wales Court of Appeal's decision in Bookson, Proprietary Limited and Wayby, which held that the New South Wales equivalent of Section 34 of the Victorian Occupational Health and Safety Act prevented an insurer from relying on a breach of the Act to avoid coverage under an insurance policy. On this basis... The Court of Appeal determined that it would undermine the commercial purpose of the policy if the requirement to comply with the regulations required absolute compliance, rather the policy required the insured to take reasonable precautions to comply with those conditions. However, the Court of Appeal did allow the appeal on the second ground which was on the basis that reasonable precautions would have meant that the insured ensured that the relevant permit was obtained and that any safety conditions were adhered to before erecting the scaffold, which had not been done. This decision helps to provide guidance for insurers and claims managers on the practical implications of the reasonable precaution condition and other statutory conditions in a public liability policy when considering whether to grant indemnity. However, it also illustrates that the requirement to comply with statutory regulations is not an absolute standard and will be considered in accordance with the precautions that were undertaken by an insured.
0: My first case note today involves the full court of the Federal Court decision of Argo Managing Agency and Quintus. In this decision, the full court overturned an earlier Federal Court decision to rectify a DNO policy. That earlier decision to rectify the policy had the effect of increasing Side C cover available under the policy from $10 million to $50 million. However, as a consequence of the full court decision, the policyholders were back to a limit of $10 million. The relevant factual background is that Quintus Limited was a sandalwood plantation investment company subject to a deed of company arrangement. Two shareholder class actions were brought against Quintus, alleging that it and others had engaged in contact in breach of various statutory duties causing loss and damage for which the class action applicants and group members sought compensation. An in-principle settlement had been agreed with respect to the class action. However, the application for settlement approval was adjourned to allow the parties to ascertain the value of any responsive insurance policies, being the only asset of value held by Quintus. At trial, it was agreed that when entering into the relevant policies in 2016, Quintus intended the coverage layers to include $50 million in side C cover and instructed its Australian broker to that effect. However, the primary judge concluded that, notwithstanding the intention on the part of Quintus, on a proper construction of the terms of the policy, it only afforded side C cover up to a sublimit of $10 million. However, the primary judge then went on to conclude that the proper construction of the policy did not reflect the relevant party's common intention and on that basis, orders were made to the effect that the policy should be rectified to reflect site C cover of $50 million. The London-based placing broker and underwriters rejected the conclusion that they shared Quintus's intention that the policy would have a sublimit of $50 million. Notably, there was no cross-appeal as to the primary judge's conclusion that on a proper construction of the policy, the applicable limit was $10 million. So, in those circumstances, the appeal was focused upon whether or not all the relevant parties had a common intention as to the policy limit, justifying the primary judge's rectification of the policy to set a limit of $50 million. The full court repeated the relevant principles, which apply when considering rectification of a commercial contract, such as a policy of insurance, and citing previous high court authority, noted that For relief by rectification, it must be demonstrated that at the time of the execution of the written instrument sought to be rectified, there was an agreement between the parties in the sense that the parties had a common intention and that the written instrument was to conform to that agreement. Critically, it must also be demonstrated that the written instrument does not reflect the agreement because of a common mistake. Before proceeding on a very comprehensive review of the evidence, the full court noted the way in which the matter proceeded before the primary judge, specifically that all of the evidence was documentary and none of the parties called any witnesses. It also specifically noted that a general misunderstanding of the coverage being sought on the part of some participants leading up to and also at the time the relevant policies were entered into does not lead to a conclusion that there was a consensus amongst them as to the coverage. For example, in this case, the fact that two participants, namely Quintus and its Australian-based broker, intended that the coverage layers include a total of $50 million did not necessarily lead to a conclusion that other participants, namely the London broker and underwriters, held a similar or common intention. In other words, a mutual mistake or misunderstanding as to what each party intends is not sufficient to establish a common intention, such as to justify the grant of the equitable remedy of rectification. The full court then undertook an assessment of the party's intentions by comprehensively reviewing the relevant documentary evidence Upon completion of that review, the full court concluded that the primary judge erred with respect to his treatment of the relevant evidence. Specifically, it was determined that on an overall weighting of the evidence, it could not be established to the requisite standard that all parties intended the policy to provide cover of $50 million. Based on that conclusion, the full court ruled there was no common intention available on the evidence sufficient to displace the written terms of the policies, which, according to the uncontested finding of the primary judge, provided cover of only $10 million. This case demonstrates the evidential burden to be overcome in establishing an insurance policy or any other commercial contract or to be rectified. Also, the case highlights the importance of clear and direct communication about important policy considerations such as coverage limits in order to avoid uncertainty, which often results in lengthy and costly disputes.
1: My next case comes from the Victorian Supreme Court and concerns an incident where a driver did not properly engage the handbrake on a street sweeper and was severely injured when attempting to stop the vehicle. The issues before the court were, number one, whether the defendant breached its duty of care to the plaintiff to avoid foreseeable risk of injury, and number two, whether the plaintiff had overwhelmingly contributed to the incident by attempting to stop the vehicle. But first, some background. The plaintiff was a 49-year-old former professional athlete, and after migrating to Australia in 2002, began competing in ultra-marathons. Between 2012 and 2015, the plaintiff worked as a personal care attendant in aged care at the same time as obtaining a certificate in work health and safety and an advanced diploma in occupational health and safety. In May 2017, the plaintiff was placed with the defendant through a labour hire arrangement in the position of a street sweeper driver. The plaintiff had a medium rigid truck licence and was provided with two weeks on the job instruction which predominantly involved observing other drivers. After that period the plaintiff began operating street sweepers alone. The type of vehicle involved could vary and while the vehicles were automatic they did not have a park gear position. To secure the vehicle the handbrake had to be engaged while the vehicle was in neutral. On the 5th of July 2017, in the course of work, the plaintiff pulled up in a parking bay, 8 metres from a 7-Eleven store. Her evidence was that she left the engine running but engaged the handbrake of the vehicle. Evidence at trial suggested this was common practice among the defendant's drivers. The plaintiff exited the sweeper and entered the store. Shortly afterwards, she noticed the sweeper rolling towards the store. The plaintiff ran to the sweeper with the intention of opening the door and stopping the vehicle as she was concerned for the safety of the people in the store. However, she slipped and ended up in front of the vehicle. She was crushed between the vehicle and a wall and suffered severe injuries. The defendant had previously undertaken an investigation into rolling incidents as the result of a previous incident. The outcome of that investigation was a corrective action plan in which the defendant would undertake administrative and engineering actions including further training and guidance in parking, use of the handbrake and the specific operational risks and hazards of each particular vehicle, the administrative action, as well as the installation of an alarm system in all trucks to indicate if the handbrake had not been activated when the door was open, the engineering action. The court found the defendant had no record of when the administrative action had been completed and there were only limited records regarding the engineering action, indicating that it had been delayed. Alarms were eventually fitted to the sweepers about six months after the incident at a cost of around $500 per alarm. The court held that the defendant had breached its duty of care to properly train and instruct the plaintiff and failed to install handbrake alarms. The defendant's main argument was that the plaintiff had overwhelmingly contributed to the incident by failing to engage the handbrake and by jumping in front of the sweeper. The court found this was a case in which the duty of care owed by the defendant required it to take steps in anticipation of and to avoid the risk of inadvertence, inattention or misjudgment by the sweeper drivers. This was reinforced by the investigation that the defendant had undertaken into rollaway incidents and the corrective action plan. The court also found the plaintiff had not jumped in front of the sweeper. In commenting on the plaintiff's intention to attempt to enter a moving vehicle and take control, the judge said, "...the law should be slow to judge people harshly for instinctive reactions of a selfless and community-spirited kind." This case demonstrates the need to thoroughly and promptly follow through in responding to risks once they have been identified. If there are delays in responding to a risk, there should be a clear record of the cause of the delay and any reasons for not taking alternative action. The decision also illustrates the court's reluctance in making a finding of contributory negligence where the victim finds themselves in an emergency situation and acts instinctively and in the interest of protecting others.
0: The final case for today is the New South Wales Supreme Court decision of Moore and scenic tours. This matter involves a class action brought against scenic tours, which, as you may know, is a company that markets and operates luxury European river cruises. The plaintiff and 31 group members purchased cruises with scenic departing between May and June 2013. However, due to poor weather conditions, the cruises were severely disrupted and a large amount of the time allocated for luxury cruising was in fact spent on much less luxurious buses. Between 2017 and 2020, decisions were handed down by the New South Wales Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal and then the High Court. Following the High Court decision, the case was remitted to the New South Wales Supreme Court for the determination of damages. The principal task of the court was to determine each group member's entitlement to damages under the various heads of loss under the Australian Consumer Law. The court first found that each group member was entitled to damages for the reduced value of the cruises in accordance with section 267 subsection 3B of the ACL. These damages were assessed by deducting the actual cost of each cruise from the true market value of the service provided, warts and all. That led to an interesting exercise of tour experts being called to give evidence as to the value of the much complained about bus cruises Using that approach, the Court ultimately concluded that the group members were entitled to damages of between 40 to 90% of the price of their respective crews. The Court then dealt with the appropriate damages for each group member's distress and disappointment arising out of their cruise experience under section 267 subsection 4 of the ACL. The Court assessed each group member individually and awarded each group member between six and $12,000. The Court also accepted that damages for the cost of wasted airfare should be awarded in relation to those group members whose sole purpose for travelling to Europe and incurring the airfares was to take the cruise. Finally, the court dealt with section 61, subsection 3 of the ACL, which provides a defence to the fitness for purpose consumer guarantee, where the particular consumer did not rely, or it was unreasonable for the consumer to so rely, on the skill or judgement of the supplier. The court held that in all the circumstances, the group members relied on scenic to achieve the intended purpose of the cruise. In particular, the court held that one... Scenic's terms and conditions, which dealt with the possibility of disruptions to the itinerary, were buried in small font, which was very hard to read, and did not clearly disclaim responsibility for the services. Two, the brochures provided to the group members conveyed the idea that the cruisers were an all-inclusive experience, which could be enjoyed without hassle. This language suggested that Scenic was prepared to assume skill and judgment over the services. Three, the group members were largely ignorant of the consequence of adverse weather conditions on the cruise experience and would have relied on the experience of Scenic, a sophisticated cruise operator. And four, a group member's decision to take out or not to take out travel insurance was not relevant to whether the group member reasonably relied on Scenic's judgement with respect to the purpose and results to be achieved by the provision of the services. This decision is another example of the court's approach in interpreting the ACL consumer guarantees in a common sense manner, consistent with the reasonable expectations of a consumer, particularly with reference to the Section 61 defence under the ACL. So that's it for this episode of Case Collective. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.